0: welcome to the dje podcast where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples here's your host devin elder
1: all right today on the show very happy to have hunter thompson with us he's the managing principal of asim capital a private equity real estate firm that has purchased more than 90 million dollars of commercial real estate hunter is also the author of Raising Capital for Real Estate, How to Attract Investors, Establish Credibility, and Fund Deals. And he's also the host of the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, among other things. But without
0: further ado, Hunter, welcome. How are you? Hey, thanks again for having me on. Much appreciated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Glad you could join us. And we're talking a little bit before about, about your book and that being launched last year. I can't wait to dive in. Before we get to some of that, some of the other stuff, um, for those folks that might not be in your universe right now or, or haven't connected with you, what was your journey into
0: commercial real estate investing? What were you doing before and what, what led you to it? Well, first of all, if you're not already in my universe, let me apologize. Trust me, I've been trying as hard as I can to get <laughs> you in my universe. So I'll give you just a quick background for those that, that don't already know. So basically, I, we all have strengths and weaknesses as entrepreneurs. And one of my very few strengths is my ability to go right when everyone's looking left or to go left when everyone's looking right. And Part of that is natural. Part of that is I have I seem to be inclined to counterintuitive things. And as an investor, this can be very lucrative. So for me, when 2008 happened, it was a massive green light. Now, in all fairness, I was insulated from that risk because I wasn't in the finance world at the time. But when that happened, I thought, okay, this is the time to be involved in financial assets. And so I didn't know much about the world of real estate. I didn't know much about the world of finance, but did everything I could to learn as quickly as possible. I basically changed who I was as a person to focus on stocks, bonds, mutual funds, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, these types of people, and just surround myself with books and people that thought about these topics and concepts and did what a lot of people did when they want to learn about finance. They invest in the stock market. And so I picked some companies that I thought would do well. And had success as almost anyone that did that started in 2008, and really thought, okay, this is working, this is a way to build financial wealth. And then something happened that almost no one talks about that I think is incredibly important in terms of my journey, which is the European debt crisis. And basically, it's very similar to what happened in the United States in 2008, there was massive volatility. In the markets in Europe, there was central banks freezing up, there was massive bailouts and bankruptcies and a complete overhaul of the financial sector to a large degree. And it created massive volatility in the US markets. And that's where I started to realize, wait a minute, after all this studying, after all this research about strategies and tactics and analysis of different companies and their balance sheets, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about the Greece bond yields. And everyone was saying at the time, the whole catchphrase was, if the Greece bond yields go above 7%, the S&P 500 is going to collapse. And that was taking place every day. So if the bonds would remain below 7% for the day, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. If they touch above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I was watching this obsessively going, what am I doing? Is there not an investment vehicle where all this effort that I can put towards Conducting due diligence, for example, will actually result in me having a predictable outcome that's not subject to these whims of things that are too complicated. Even the brightest minds in the world can't predict or mitigate. And that search, which I was open to anything, quickly led me to real estate and you know, later this conversation we're having right now.
1: Outstanding. I appreciate that, uh, that look back and I, I like a lot of what you said there, you know, initially your search and surrounding yourself with the right people. And that's critical for anybody getting started. Um, and we talk about the stock market roller coaster Sometimes you get the brightest minds in the world on, on this stuff and they can't get it right. That's pretty intimidating as, as an investor, especially somebody that, you know, you and I have chosen to take this on kind of as a full-time uh, mission. Right. But other people just, they've got other things going on. They might want to invest passively. And that's even, a bigger mountain of climb for them if if it 's uh, really just kind of a stock market gamble right roller coaster you 're going to win some you 're going to lose some and i think if if you have that mindset and that 's acceptable to you then uh, great go go play but um, for a lot of us that's that 's not acceptable for a large chunk of our portfolio so I appreciate that. What was your initial um, where did you start with real estate? You know, was it was there a certain book? Was it a conference? You know, what, what was your gateway? I'm always real curious to see where, where, you know, where that pivotal moment occurred for, for people.
0: You know, of course, rich dad, poor dad plays a role in a lot of people's story that you asked that question. But I was very fortunate in terms of a couple things that took place. And I always try to be humble about this because unquestionably, it play, played a huge role in my career. Uh, one of those was the timing of my entrance into the sector. And I say that, of course, you know, everyone's cousin that invested in multifamily Texas starting in 2012 or whatever, they had success, right? But for me, it wasn't so much the market dynamics. It was the fact that the market dynamics wiped out so much noise, especially in California, that only the strong had survived. And so I kind of got the best of both worlds. I know. What it's like to go to a networking event where everyone's head is in their hands. I know what it's like where every media outlet is saying that the, the death spiral of foreclosures is going to continue and continue, but I didn't have to live it with my own financial situation. My own portfolio didn't have to take that hit. And perhaps what's even more stronger than that is that the strategies that I created were those based on very savvy individuals that were able to avoid to a large degree that massive correction, again, especially in California. So when you kind of take this, what I'm saying is a lot of people enter the world of real estate. They say, okay, I got $20,000. I can put $20,000 on a $100,000 property, rent it out for $1,000 a month, make a 7% to 8% return. And you can do that. And I know a lot of people that have very lucrative businesses doing that. But it wasn't that compelling to me because similar to the stock market, I didn't feel like I had a market advantage. I was looking for a wildly asymmetric advantage. I didn't know what I was looking for, but what I ended up finding was the world of syndications. And I was very fortunate to leapfrog a lot of those typical strategies people start with and start my career with very advanced strategies, purchasing 15 to $50 million properties by identifying best-in-class sponsors in their respective asset class. And once I was tuned into the world of passive investing through syndications, then I thought, okay, this is something that the general public does not know about, and they're going to. Because the, the kind of the foresight that I saw was this is very, very favorable, with a little bit of work you can get a lot in terms of your portfolio. Like with the stock market, you can do a lot of work and not get very much. If you do a little work in terms of syndications, who to know, how to analyze deals, who to rely on, who to trust, what sponsors you can really put your faith in, that will go a long way. That will last generations if you want it to. And you know, the first deals I did, were investments in, you know, mobile home parks, self-storage, multifamily properties. And again, like I said, very humble for that, very fortunate. If the market timing had been different, I don't think I would have able to create those relationships that I did so early on in my career.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great insight and, and I appreciate your perspective, especially around timing there. Let's talk a little bit about the book. So I mentioned at the top of the hour here um, that last year you, you wrote and released a book called Raising Capital for Real Estate, How to Attract Investors. Establish credibility and fund deals. Um, I, I love you know the, the the process of of writing and releasing and publishing a book is uh, is a, is a big one. I haven't done it myself, but certainly have kind of had a behind the scenes look on what that entails. It's no small process. Um, I'd love to learn your process for that. Was this something that was on your mind for years? Did you all of a sudden decide to go do it? Was this a long process? I mean, how how did it come about for you and what was the driver there?
0: So, I mean, the driver to get started with the big picture story is that despite the fact that I had developed, the first time I raised money, you know, I started investing from my own personal portfolio first. And so I had... A personal track record, I had developed incredibly advantageous strategic partnerships. I'd even helped my like, immediate, close friends and family start investing. And so when I went out to raise my first fund, I had a lot of advantages that most people don't have, um, as well as knowledge and network and, and all that, and got in a room with 30 people, all were accredited investors. So 30 million dollars is in the room, most likely and gave him a presentation that I would certainly give today and failed, I fell on my face. I mean, I raised $0 after not exactly contractually, but from a relationship standpoint, I anticipated to raise half a million dollars and committed to do that. And so my experience with that was that I had all this going for me. I had all these advantages that most people that are becoming real estate entrepreneurs don't have. And I came up wildly short, can't come up more short than zero. I need to figure out a way to completely reposition this. And a big key takeaway was that I think a lot of people listening to the show, if you're starting your, your world of commercial real estate or raising money, you would probably love to present in a room of $30 million and 30 accredited investors. The realization was that I never want to present in that room again that's not enough investors. That's not enough money. I have to be able to get in front of thousands of people. And if I'm going to spend my time doing any sort of presentation, it has to be scalable, replicatable, recordable. I can send it out over and over again. I want people to be attracted to me so that I never have to try to convince someone to invest with me. And that shift in mindset was what ended up creating the system that we have today at some Capital. And you know we've raised tens of millions of dollars and There's been times we've raised $5 million in just a few days and things like that. So I went from failing to raise half a million to, you know, if we put out a deal, it's very likely that I'll get two emails committing to raise, to invest uh, $500,000. And so the book is about how I created that infrastructure to go from that first mindset of how can I scrounge together half a million dollars to how can I ensure that our deals are oversubscribed? And um, that was a you know big learning lesson. I basically gave away the playbook. Because I'm hell-bent on helping people get money out of the stock market.
1: Yeah, isn't that the truth? I mean, you're right. Most people are not aware that this that these other vehicles exist, right? Um, that's a great point. And, and I think, you know, what comes to mind about your pivot in the, your approach to raising capital is just the advantage of of time, right? I mean somebody might come and read your book or they might listen to your podcast and three months might go by. They they've got to kind of chew on it. And by the time they finally call your office or reach out to you or get on your list, mm. they might already know you, you know, and, and if you're trying to close money in a room full of strangers, regardless of your credibility or your expertise, like you said, you'd give that presentation again today. It was not a flawed presentation, right? It's just that you didn't have the luxury of time. And I, I, I kind of counsel people on, on that a lot too that want to get into multifamily or, or whatever, or commercial real estate. It's like, should we, should we start talking investors when we have a deal? And I'm like, no, man, you better not. I mean, it's a lot harder to raise capital than you think in a short time frame. I think it's yes. a lot easier than people think to raise capital if you're playing a long game, right? And you're always talking to investors. Um, but I love that, you know. I, and and that's that's what we do as entrepreneurs, right? We get kicked in the teeth and go, okay, nope, that didn't work. What's the, ne-? you know, there's a pivot here. There's another strategy um, to to make that happen. So was the the book process itself? Was this something that took two years to write? Were you very regimented about putting it together, or or? or that's, it's just a lot of work. Right. And that's not even the marketing of it, which is a whole other animal. Um, how, how did that come together? The process of writing the book for you?
0: Yeah. So again, we're talking about my strengths now. So I feel like I'm just harping on this. I have like very few strengths, like I said, ability to go right when everyone's looking left. And another one is just speed of execution. And now, you know, all my streaks, right? So like I, everything I think, I think a third
1: strength I, is, uh, is knowing your limitations. Okay. <laughs> well, add that's, that one in it. I might've figured that out for myself in the last five years of my life and I'm 42. So, I mean, it, it took a while.
0: So I think that's a strength too. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Understood. My goal is if I can focus on my strengths and outsource or insource everything else, the business will scale much more quickly than otherwise. Plus I'll have an enjoyable life because I'm I'm able to focus on things I love because that's why they're strengths. So when it comes to the speed of execution, I did it in six months. Um, And it was very, very pointed. And it was basically, I did a version of what I've talked about my podcast many times about, you know, how to accomplish big goals and lightning speed. And here kind of the framework. Number one, get a coach, get someone that has done it at a high level and most likely pay them for your services so that you can replicate their moves. Number two, get some witnesses, tell everybody, Hey, listen, I'm launching this book on cyber Monday. That's happening before I even start, start the book, Um, you know, raise the stakes. So whatever that means for you. So that's again, saying it, getting some witnesses, telling people you're going to sell a thousand copies or 5,000 copies within a certain time period, just making it bigger than even needs to be. One thing I did was before I wrote a page, I got the cover and was like, this is the goal. And it just motivated me because I'm very motivated by graphic design. And then execute at a rate that you could say, holy crap, I could tell a story about this later down the road because you most likely will. Right. So, like, my thing there is that a lot of people don't accomplish the goals that they're setting out to do because they're not large enough to inspire them. And because of that, they don't envision themselves later down the road telling the story about how they were able to write and launch this book in six months. Now, I have the benefit of speaking publicly frequently, so it's something that I know that is going to happen. So I want to know the answer to that question is going to be something that someone goes, dang, this kid doesn't mess around. So you know, that's the answer. And um, you know, I've heard people writing a book in 34 hours where they wrote 17 hours on the way to Tokyo and then 17 hours on the way back, and that was the book. And it's, you know, it's it's amazing what people can get done. Um, and yes, I did write it personally. And then I had a copy editor work and we just went back and forth. And then my mom helped edit. And it was a really amazing process. But I will say one thing that I almost blew it at. And anyone that's suggests writing a book or thinking about it, take this very seriously. Um, the book is available at RaisingCapitalForRealEstate.com. And the reason I say that is that we are dedicated to building relationships with our investors. If you create a massive life's work, which is what raising capital is for me, and put it on Amazon and don't have the ability to capture emails and truly build and nurture that relationship, it's it's a wasted time. Sure, people will get a lot out of the book, but not nearly as much as they'll get out of it if they're actually in our infrastructure learning from things. So with about three weeks left in that time horizon, I was tapped into the world of the free plus shipping model and you can get the book for free raising Just got to pay for shipping. And there's a bunch of amazing bonuses on there and interviews with securities advisors and people that have raised a hundred million dollars. And that changed it from something that was just a piece of work to something that could revolutionize a piece of the business. Cause we have an educational paid service as well as part of our business. So make sure that if you write a book include wild bonuses that are only available. If people exchange their email addresses, you can actually get them in your infrastructure.
1: I love it. I love that. It takes us so far beyond just the, uh, just the written word. Did you guys yes. do an audible component too? I know that's such a big part of consumption these days.
0: <laughs> yes, I did. And I'm laughing because I've done a lot of grueling things as an entrepreneur that takes the cake to put things ah. in perspective. Were you the I narrator? My, that's right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. But you do the podcast. And,
1: How many hundreds of hours of audio have you done? But it was yes. just
0: way harder just to read your own book. Yeah. You know, I'll actually tap into some like kind of self help stuff in this because this is a, an important learning moment. Earlier, when I said, you know, raise the stakes, that's important to me. I think some people get very motivated by negativity. If you ever listen to an interview with Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, His teammates would say, you know, the press said, you don't have it anymore, whatever. Last time this team, they shut you down. And what happens the next game? 60 points. That's not me. That's the opposite of me, actually. I'm the guy that I want to think in my head, this is going to change the world. This book is going to change the world. Now, why do I say that? Because why else would I sit for 18 hours saying the same sentence over and over again until it's perfect? Because I believe that the stakes were high. Right. And so what that means is I give my audio guy 18 hours of me saying each sentence three times, and he has to listen to it and cut it down to five and a half hours. That's how much stuttering and stopping that I did during that presentation. But guess what? I'm really proud of it. And now, if you, you can go to get audible.com or raisingcapitalforrealestate.com, it's available there as well.
1: Yeah, awesome. So 18 hours, boy. your audio guy, uh, whatever you paid him, it wasn't enough to edit that.
0: (laughs) At the beginning, he was like, Oh, this will be cool. I can work on more projects like this. And at the end, I go, well, now you can put it on your resume. He goes, actually, I'm not because I'm never going to do something like that again. (laughs) I don't blame him. That is crazy and crazy for you too. But you're right. Look, it's locked and it's done now. And you're proud of it. If you weren't, that would haunt you forever, right? One of my favorite people that's in the online space is a guy named Russell Brunson uh, who is the founder of ClickFunnels and a premier marketer in the space if he can take the time while he's running a billion dollar company that did not take VC capital on to record his audiobook so can I and so that's a powerful learning moment as well
1: love it love it that's fantastic um I love hearing kind of the ins and outs of actually the production of of getting that book out and launched um Tell tell folks a little bit about your podcast. So you've been doing the podcast for how long now and how many episodes are you up to?
0: We have about 230 episodes. And you know the podcast medium, as you know, has become wildly popularized. And I actually talk about it a little bit in my book as well, which is that as investors, we're always looking for bubbles. And you can sense, you can feel like perhaps this is a bubble in the podcast world. But I make the argument that a bubble is indicative where the return versus the risk profile is wildly asymmetric in the wrong direction. Like in 1999, you could see people investing in pets.com where it was just a website, no business, no cash flow. That was a bubble because the risk was very, very high. And the return was basically just a massive question mark. With the podcast, this is me and you having a conversation right now. Both of us probably spent $500 setting this thing up. There's not a team of people in the back saying, don't say this and that and the other thing. And so what I mean by that is the the return is wildly asymmetric in the right way. You can build relationships, you can learn from other people you respect. And so I'm just really excited to see this medium continue to grow and to also be a part of it. Um, Because of the popularization, though, it's important to be differentiated. Everyone's show should have a differentiating factor so that if you Think about a topic or a particular asset class or a strategy, they should know this is the podcast I'll send you to. Um, ours is a combination of being a little bit more focused on advanced strategies, you know, syndications. The, but we interview a lot of people that have purchased $100 million or more of real estate, and then the economic side of things, which is something I have a background in and just very much drawn to. So we've interviewed. IMF consultants or, you know, a credit, a very acclaimed economists that have a very specific stance on the federal reserve and how that's going to impact things, interest rates and the relationship between that and real estate. Those are very important topics that a lot of real estate investors prior to 2008 didn't really contemplate. And it created a massive challenge for them.
1: Yep. Yep. That's right. Now I appreciate that context. Uh, it is interesting. There's, there's so many podcasts out there and um, you know, a lot of competition or a bubble or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, if you're really just kind of trying to have a little, a tribe, I mean, that's what we're trying to do is have a tribe of a couple hundred investors. We can go out and and do a couple of deals a year and that helps us build relationships. Then that's a win, you know? Oh my gosh. I
0: mean, yeah. What you just said, it just struck a nerve because a couple hundred investors is like, that can change your life. Right. Like I agree with you, create a podcast, couple hundred investors, Take a couple hundred investors and multiply that by fifty thousand dollars a year of investment and multiply that by three in terms of acquired value because you use debt financing. It will shock you at how much two hundred times fifty thousand times three is on an annual basis. pretty and powerful
1: yeah yeah there's no doubt there's no doubt that these barriers have come down in terms of connection and uh, for whatever reason it's such a bizarre um, phenomenon, but you know I, I listen to. Maybe dozens of hours of podcasts a week, right, and there's <laughs> this, everybody talks about a shortened attention span. well, man, there's podcast hosts that have me for hours on end every week, right, and now it <laughs> might be drive time or downtime or or i'm uh you know hitting golf balls or whatever, but you know I, the, it is the opposite of a short attention span, you know these these long form shows, so that's really kind of a cool, unexpected thing, I think if you would have talked about that being a phenomenon ten years ago. Nobody would have believed you.
0: I mean, the most popular podcast of all is a three and a half hour conversation. Who could have possibly thought that? And what, uh, and of course, I'm referring to Joe Rogan's show. And what has that done for society? In my opinion, it's been incredibly beneficial. Why? Because people are becoming much more in tune with learning deeply as opposed to what's available in mainstream media, which is. Once you go from three and a half hour conversation with someone like, you know, some MIT scientist or uh, just some philosopher, economist on Joe Rogan show to any of the mainstream media outlets where you say, this is what this person says, three bullet points. This is what the other person says that completely disagrees with them. There's three bullet points and we're going to go to break. It's like, wow, it's a very different intellectual situation when you listen to someone actually go deep.
1: So I'm a huge fan of Joe Rogan, by the way. Yeah. Hey, me too. Absolutely. That was one of the, you know, that's one of the guys that I, I said I'd give all my uh, time and attention to. And it's amazing how there's stuff I'm exposed to that I never on the surface of what would have pursued, but I've had so many interesting experiences listening to it. I'll give it a shot. And, and uh, you know, we've all been exposed to so many different ideas through that, through his show It's fantastic. Uh, looks like he's moving to Austin too, along with Tesla. So the whole world's coming to Austin, Texas. Um, it hurts. <laughs> Cause I I'm in LA actually, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a loss, right? That's a loss. Um, well, I'd love to hear, we're, we're talking right now, Hunter in, uh, you know, kind of the second half of 2020, 2020 has been a very interesting year. What um, you know, how's it been for you and what do you see for kind of the second half of the year for
0: your business? So I'll kind of break this into two segments. I think that anyone listening to the show needs to understand that, Yes, this has been a really challenging year for pretty much everyone. But we as investors are wildly more prepared for what has happened than most people. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, There's a financial reason, there's an emotional reason, and they're kind of tied together in our business. But prior to March of 2020, I bet if I were to go back and listen to every single one of your podcasts, you probably asked the question, when's the next recession going to be and how significant it's going to be. That's not typical of most businesses in the sense that if you listen to Dennis talk for five hours, they'll almost never focus on when's the recession going to be? Is it going to mean that our business is not going to be viable anymore? So, and it may be the case that it is in the sense that we as investors are constantly focusing on the economic cycle, which is not typical of most sectors of the world. So we're prepared emotionally. We know that these things happen every five to seven years or so. And now that it seems to be happening or is happening, um, we're kind of more ready for it, even if it's just the emotional component. But that's really what I want to drive home here. There's the financial component. You have to be able to generate revenue. You have to be able to generate leads online. You have to be able to have some sort of side hustle. I think it's a huge thing to do that in today's environment, especially, but also the emotional component. If you're listening to this program, you most likely are the leader that people are looking to when it comes to these conversations, you have to be that source source of stability, and it can be very challenging, especially at home, where you've got kids running around their home and not going to school and stuff like that. I don't have kids, but I'm very sympathetic to that reality. but it's just a really good time to flex your muscles and be that guy so that you will be that guy or girl so that you can stand out consistently. Um, as far as our business, we have been again, very fortunate in the sense that the strategies that I created were born out of the wake of 2008. So there's been a real serious focus on the mobile home park business, the self storage business, and the uh, workforce housing apartment business. And those three asset classes have stood up quite well. In fact, I'll be honest with you, surprisingly well, even though they are the more recession resistant assets of commercial real estate, at the height of the mania surrounding COVID, you know, I called an owner that has at least a billion dollars under management, and he said, look, I can tell you with a high degree of confidence that our collections data next month is going to be somewhere between 60% and 90%. And he wasn't joking. There was just no certainty in the marketplace, government action, how efficient it's going to be, how quickly is the money going to get in everyone's hands. And so we feel very fortunate in terms of that. But I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity in the wake of those, maybe not necessarily in those asset classes, because you just haven't seen the distress, which makes sense. It means the thesis that we've been harping on and every podcast I've done over the last 230 is reasonable. But I think the distressed debt space is something that will create an opportunity. That we haven't participated meaningfully in because of the pricing arbitrage. And I also think senior living, which I have been talking about significantly, there's going to be pricing arbitrage there. I think that the, there's a disequilibrium between the fear in that. And in a few short years, that fear will be drastically subsided. And the overwhelming demand for investor appetite, both at the accredited level, as well as the institutional level, will far overcome what most people are concerned about. So that's really what I'm focusing on, those four asset classes or five asset classes.
1: Outstanding. I appreciate your, your uh, commentary there. That was one thing f- I know for us that was, that was big. You know, when, when all this COVID stuff hit, there was a lot of uncertainty. And Thankfully, we've done very well. In fact, I was joking with another operator friend that if we would have just gone on vacation there for a couple of months and come back, really wouldn't have had any impact. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't know that, that in March. We, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we didn't know that in March, right? We didn't know what was going to happen in March. We paused distribution to investors, which we've since resumed. But we said, "Hey, let's stay cash heavy on all our assets um, and and see what happens." Uh, but but our thesis held up there as far as you know being in multifamily in Texas, et cetera. But the emotional component, I think, is really important. And you're right; I saw that for a lot of folks that were not entrepreneurs just get kind of emotionally clobbered and not to again very thankful that we've fared it well but when all this hit i thought well i've been getting it kicked in the teeth for five years as an entrepreneur this is just another this is just another out of left field punch that we're going to roll with just like the hundred other that we have you know and so i think entrepreneurs are uniquely prepared. To, to kind of dealt with what's happened this year and what will, ha- what will happen in the future in that you kind of, kind of have that muscle already built, that muscle of dealing with the unknown, of pivoting, of creating new revenue streams. Like you're already, as an entrepreneur, kind of up and running with that. So uh, that, that's been an interesting, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that on the emotional component. I appreciate that. Um, Can
0: I say a couple of things? Because you just touched sure, on yeah. so many things that I just am sure. so passionate about. So one thing is, <laughs> my My wife works in the corporate event business, and so this was two thousand and eight for her. You know We went through a month period where my we both worked together worked from home at her in another office, where my office was business as usual, and in the other room, I mean you know bursting into tears on a regular basis, completely reasonable everything's shutting down there is no events it 's illegal to congregate i mean what her business was banned, and I am just so proud of her for pivoting into the growing online event space and now is actually going to be helping us do our, our first online conference. We've done two annual conferences and going to be our, doing our first annual uh, online one. And that's incredible. But also I wanted to mention there's the uncertainty in the marketplace has really, you know, we haven't done a deal post COVID. We right. stopped and took a real hard look at where this is going to be and preparing emotionally to pull the trigger when times are tough, but, In real estate, one of the benefits is that it moves like a barge, not a speed boat. And so when I entered the sector in 2010, I heard a lot of people say, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. You need to back up the truck right now and buy these assets at a discounted price. To a large degree, they were correct. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. But I swear the deals I saw in 2014 were better than the deals I saw in 2010. Because I grew my network faster, I grew my education base faster, I grew my confidence and my courage and my, at worst, uh, my access to capital much more quickly than the market recovered. And so don't listen to those people who are pushing you to push wire when you feel not 100% confident. There's always an opportunity in real estate. That's the point, guys. It's multi-generational wealth creation through the most predictable vehicle in the world. And it is true. That it's created more millionaires than any other asset class, but it's also created more bankruptcies. So huh. the key is to not do that. Don't blow it one time in a big, meaningful way. So we've been very cautious and you know, not focusing on how can we get to that 15 and 18% IRR, now looking at deals more heavily weighted to the downside. We always do that, of course, as investors, but I'm saying, you know, what does this deal look like with no rent growth for two years? You no, know, I'm trying to be compelled by, can we get to a two debt service coverage ratio and still get an 11% IRR? That's sounding super compelling. Now, the upside would be great, but the downside protection is just more and more important because of the uncertainty in the marketplace. If you take NOI times 20 and get a purchase price, which would be a five cap, sure. But what if that NOI is not predictable? The whole formula changes drastically.
1: Right. Yeah, downside scenario with an 11 IRR pretty darn good, you know. Maybe Agreed. maybe us in the multifamily space that are accustomed to, you know, uh, higher numbers by comparison that doesn't look good, but as a general uh downside uh return on investment pretty pretty solid double digits.
0: If you play with it in a financial calculator and put your portfolio in 11% IRR collateralized by the hand of God, I will play that game all day. Right. I'd love to have my portfolio doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. hundred, percent. I love it. I love it. Um, this is, this is great. I, I love the, um, I love the depth that you go to on some of the, some of the economics uh, in your podcast and some of the guests that you've had on your podcast. Um, what's, what's ahead for you guys? Is it, is it more the same you've built a brand, you built a platform, you've got a book, um, you mentioned some of the asset classes that you're, that you're strong on. Do you think that continues for the foreseeable future for you guys? Or You mentioned the online event. Maybe you could touch on that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, right now we're very excited about I'll start with that. The online event is just really, really exciting because there's so many question marks and we have such a great access to a network of people that can add tremendous value. So, if you're interested in learning about that, go to Intelligent Investors, REC com, you can actually get all of the previous two years' sessions. We gave it away as a COVID relief program. Oh, Usually, cool. it costs money, so you can go and get that. Um, I'm very much looking forward to that. But you know, I started this podcast talking about a really embarrassing failure, and by the way, it wasn't the financial part of that failure that was bothersome; it was the emotional part because I had not been kicked in the teeth. So when you and I tell stories about getting kicked in the teeth, we're doing it for two reasons: one. We want to tell people that have been kicked in the teeth, guess what? So did I, and it's all good. And two, for people that haven't yet, we're trying to prepare them so that they know they can keep going. And so I I feel like that's a really important point. The other side of that though, is once you do get kicked in the teeth and you do get over it and you start to realize, wait a minute, now I'm invincible, (laughs) start to be, things can really be powerful. And so the powerful moment now, which I'm sure you'll agree with, is that, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, If I had three more zeros in my bank account, I'd be doing this exact interview. It would be so similar to my business right now because I'm in love with my business. And I'm sure you agree with me on that. And that doesn't that feel incredible to think about? I mean, for most people, that three more zeros would drastically change their day to day. But we're very fortunate to work with people we love and to work in the industry that we're passionate about. So, I just want more of the same. I want to help more people get money out of the stock market, get into predictable asymmetric returns, which is why my company is called ASIM Capital. So, you know, we've got hundreds of investors. I want it to be thousands. And so, we're putting in place things to facilitate that.
1: Fantastic. I love that comment that your day wouldn't change, right? With some more zeros or another comma in the bank account. And, you know, for those listening, if that's not your reality, that is certainly something worth aspiring to and working towards because that's a, that's a very powerful way to live. That's, that's how I set it out to do years and years ago. It's why I became an entrepreneur and I'm in the same boat. You know, I like to work. I like my other stuff that I do, family and vacation. And i got a bunch of hobbies, things like that. Um, but I like to work too. And it's all in a proportion that I choose. And there's honestly, there's nothing more powerful than, than that. Cause it doesn't, it eh, is so cliche to say, it doesn't feel like work, but when you're kind of structuring your life where you're always doing what you want, I, I don't know that there's a better aspiration
0: to, to shoot for, you yeah. know, especially when you're doing it at a high level and not to say that I am, but I can see that it starts to make sense, right? You hear stories and I think sports, Uh, play an interesting role in society because you just know that they're putting it all on the line. So when you think about, you know, runners, for example, marathon runners that are doing 120 miles a week, it's like who on earth would want to run 120 miles a week? Well, think about what it's like from their perspective. They're like operating in this body, which is designed to run. And it's just like, just let me do this thing where I'm operating on a quasi Olympic level. And I want to do it all day, every day similarly that's what I aspire to in the world of real estate where I can just feel it pulsing through my veins and then yeah it doesn't feel like work but whatever that means I love it you know what I mean
1: <laughs> I love it yeah that's such a great distinction operating at a high level and doing it. that's that's fantastic uh Hunter I really appreciate you taking some time to share your story and some insights here what's the best way for someone to connect with you if, they, if they're not already connected or in your universe
0: yeah, sure. So we've got the podcast, which is the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. That's available at cashflowconnections.com. If you're interested in raising money, I really do suggest raising capital for It's eight bucks and you pay for the shipping. If you don't get eight bucks of value, sue me. I mean, I, I try my best. <laughs> Love it. Love and then again, well, the intelligentinvestorsrec.com for the conference. Perfect. Well, we'll link to the book in the show notes so
1: people can go to that website and and check that out. And I definitely recommend that you do if you're interested in raising capital. Um, I really enjoyed this, Hunter. Thanks so much for your time and hope to uh,
0: catch up with you soon. Thanks again. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to the DJE Podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.